Benjamin's come to help me um, just briefly on the stage to um, have a look and try to figure out what's going on with our mystery box. Some of us might be getting familiar with this over the holiday weeks. And um, Benjamin, maybe I could ask you to open up the mystery box for me and show everyone what might be inside. Okay. Nice big block of what? Marvellous Creations Jelly Popping Candy Beans. Wow. I thought chocolate, but <laughs> it turns out awesome reader, so that's very cool. You can hold on to it if you like. Um, do you like chocolate, Benjamin? Yeah. Do you like chocolate a lot? Probably not my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> but you do really, really like it, right? Yep, yep, thought so. Um, never work with children, animals? Um, no. <laughs> no. Um, so, so you really like chocolate, excellent. Um, that, that block of chocolate's pretty impressive, isn't it? It's pretty big. Yeah. You, could, you, could, you could have that block of chocolate if you wanted. I mean, it would be kind of... I would give it to you. I would do that. Yep. You could just take it. You could just leave with it and enjoy the chocolate. And um, all you'd have to do is sign over your pocket money to me ongoing. It's a pretty good deal, right? Yes. <laughs> Remember the bit where I said, just agree with me on everything. <laughs> Too much personality for that. <laughs> so, good deal, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you should do it. You should absolutely take that chocolate. It looks so good. Look at those delicious popping candy bits, my favourite. But, I mean, you could probably buy a lot more chocolate than that with, you know, maybe just like one week's worth of your pocket money. But then you'd actually have to do all the work yourself. You'd have to go out, you'd have to save, you'd have to buy it, you'd have to, you know, go through the whole transaction process in the store. It's a lot of work. I think that one is a much better choice because you've got it in your hand and you could just eat it right now. You could, like, make yourself sick in the service, entertain all the folks around you. What a great idea. Yes. 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 Excellent. <laughs> now we've got it. <laughs> So, I am more than happy for you to take that thank you for your help, and um, you can head back to mum and dad. Thank you, Benjamin. Let's give Benjamin a big thank you, and um, I'll just pop around um, for Chocolate Appreciation Day um, every week, starting tomorrow. Excellent. And um, we'll just get that signature about your... Um, your pocket money. That would be awesome. Thank you, Benjamin. Well, temptation, it's a funny thing, isn't it? It's, um, we're talking today about, yes, temptation, but about the certainty of pushback from God's enemy in our lives and against God's plan. And so with that in mind, we're just going to kind of consider some things about the world today. We often hear people 
blaming the world today for a lot of problems. It might be the modern values or lack of them. It might be technology or industry or anything that we see that makes life more complicated and creates more problems than it solves. It's actually probably true. That is probably the case a lot of the time. But I think it's just as likely that it's simply how human beings are wired. We have this tendency to complicate our lives constantly. Even if it's simple and there's no reason to complicate it, we tend to go down a track that will make life a lot messier than it is. It's because we have a preference to make our own rules in life and to follow them and to go with that instead of following God's way in life, which requires, well, it's simpler, but it requires more humility in life. And it's a struggle for us to live a life that relies heavily, or should I say completely, on God for provision and protection and guidance. And it's usually our own attempts to improve life in our wisdom that turns it into this messy, complicated business that we often have to then get ourselves out of. And eventually that kind of complicated, messy life <clears throat> that is, <clears throat> excuse me, that's separate from God's way of doing life is often what highlights or sparks in us a need for a simpler and a more genuine experience of being while we're here on earth. And there's a story from this book, The Little Prince, and it's a classic children's book by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And um, there's this little story I'd just like to read very briefly from chapter 23. Good morning, said the little prince. Good morning, said the merchant. This was a merchant who sold pills that have been invented to quench thirst. You need only swallow one pill a week and you would feel no need of anything to drink. Why are you selling those, asked the little prince. Because they save a tremendous amount of time, said the merchant. Computations have been made by experts. With these pills, you save 53 minutes in a week, every week. And what do I do with those 53 minutes, asked the little prince. Well, anything you like. Well, as for me, said the little prince to himself, if I had 53 minutes to spend as I liked, I should walk at my leisure towards a spring of fresh water. Wouldn't it be awesome if we were all like the little prince, if we could see <clears throat> what we really needed in the face of a so-called life-changing temptation that was placed in front of us, something as simple as a pill to make everything so much easier, save us time, improve our life. But to choose the authentic and the genuine experience over the more intriguing, perhaps, and fast-tracked version of life is something we see much less of. It's humbling to do that, to make that kind of decision, to choose a simpler and more genuine existence, because it requires us to do something that's outside of ourselves. It requires us to give up the control over everything that's going on around us 
and trust God completely. We aren't equipped to do it on our own, actually. Humans were never designed to function and flourish independently of a relationship with with God. We were just designed to be connected vitally to him from the very beginning. But we just default to our own way, that complicated, messy way of doing life when we're left to our own devices. It often leads us to disaster. I expect if we just had a moment or two to think about the times when we've made choices that were based on our own wisdom and our own way and not God's way, we could probably point out and recall disasters, difficulties, challenges that came from those decisions. And this theme is very, very familiar in the Bible. It keeps popping up all the way through. And it's like the ongoing story of God's people is them going their own way. We'll start with Adam and Eve. They were meant to pass on the privileges of enjoying a close relationship to God, to their children and their children's children, and all the way down the line through the whole human race, including us today. But God's enemy appears in the Garden of Eden in front of Adam and Eve and sees a great opportunity to foil the relationship between them and God, this perfect, simple, genuine relationship that brings great peace and joy. And he decides to tempt Adam and Eve with a competing goal in their lives. He tempts them with the desire to be like God instead of knowing God. He creates in them a need or a sense of a need to know more, to be like God and not just be pleased with what we were created for, to know him and to trust him. And it looked so attractive to them, didn't it? Most of us know the story. They were tempted and they ate of that fruit. And and the fruit of that tree that God had specifically asked them not to eat from it did actually deliver on what he'd offered. They, they did become more like God, but only in one aspect, and that was to know the difference between good and evil. And they actually weren't fully equipped to deal with that. We aren't actually fully equipped to deal with evil. That's why it's such a struggle in this life experience all the horrible things that happen because we were never meant to. We were designed to be vitally connected to God, to know him and allow him to carry all those things. The byproduct of them being like God was that confusion came in, confusion and hardship and ultimately separation from God and they were sent away from the garden where they were so perfectly placed in connection with God. And their lives from that point became very complicated. It hasn't stopped. It hasn't gotten any less. We continue with those struggles because of that moment. We jump forward to a man named Abraham, who also would be familiar to many. And God was really pleased with Abraham because he was a righteous man. And so he made a promise to him that he would make him Uh, the father of a great nation. And that did happen. 
Abraham's son and his son and his sons became the nation known as Israel. And they would know God. He He promised to be their God and they would be his people. They needed to follow him. And their role would partly be to point, or largely be, to point others also, other nations, point them to God so that they could know him too. But again, when they were put to the test, they just struggled so much with the trusting side, with the believing God for his provision and not going after it themselves. They struggled to really see how they would get this promised land on his terms. And so they went around it another way. They found other angles and ways to achieve the promises that God had made, but so smart they thought they would do it without God himself. And the simple way forward for them would have just simply to have known known God and follow his ways. But when they decided that wouldn't work, they still ended up where they were meant to, but the journey along the way was a nightmare. And when they eventually established themselves in the land, a lot of the time they faced even worse challenges, and this time without God's blessing. Much worse situation than they started in. Let's jump forward again, and and now we're going to focus on Jesus and his time on earth. Jesus' role was to restore all people back to God, and that's what we celebrate today. That has happened, and for many, we've accepted that as a gift. And where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus would succeed. He would come and set things straight. To do this, he would need to resist what Adam and Israel couldn't resist, the tendency to go their own way. Jesus would need to go through this intense time of testing before he could come out the other side faultless. And so it's here we pick up the story of the temptations of Jesus, as it's often referred to. And you might like to follow along if you've got a Bible, or it will be on the screen. Or um, you might use the YouVersion app if you've got that as well. So Jesus had been baptised. And he, there was this glorious moment where God's spirit descended on him like a dove. And the people all around saw it. John the Baptist was there having just baptised Jesus. And God's own voice was heard saying, this is my dear son, and I'm very pleased with him. And it was an incredible moment, um, sort of a pinnacle, I guess, of, of the, at this very start of Jesus's ministry on earth. And from there, you would expect perhaps that he would go off and start preaching and, and um, perform miracles and heal everyone that needed it. But actually, <clears throat> that's not happened. That is not what happened straight away. He's officially anointed for ministry in that moment, but the period of testing comes first. So, the beginning of Luke 4, verses 1 to 13, is the full passage. I'm just going to read a small section as we go through and look at each few verses. So, verses 1 to 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, 
left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. What's happening here? I mean, how does Jesus end up in the wilderness right after his baptism? Well, verse 1 makes it really clear who the driving force behind Jesus is. It even goes to the point of, of reiterating it, mentioning twice. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There's no doubt that this is meant to happen. Jesus is where he's meant to be. Jesus follows the Holy Spirit and he ends up in not where we expect, but instead a vulnerable and barren place. There's nothing there to speak of, but regardless of his surroundings and the circumstances, God is with him. God has been with him at the baptism very clearly, stating publicly that Jesus is his son and is really pleased and, and sending his spirit to rest on him. And then... In the wilderness, we know that God's spirit is with him and Jesus has been sent for a really specific purpose to the wilderness. Um, it's going to be a time for him to focus completely on God, no other distractions. He's going to take that time to rely fully on God because he's going to have 40 days, 40 days of, of fasting and praying and tempting. It tells us that Satan tempted him throughout that time. And it was specifically helping him to get ready for what was to come in his ministry. But of course, this would be the perfect opportunity for Satan to step in, for him to come and attempt to do what he previously did to the other representatives of God, Adam, Eve and Israel, the nation. And Satan would use Jesus' weakest moment to come in and tempt him the most. It says at the end, these three specific temptations occurred um, after he had been tempted also for 40 days. And the first specific one that's recorded is verse 3. It says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Satan had been successful Previously, and he desperately wants to take Jesus out in the same way, wants to take him off the mission that he's been given. And the way he tries to do that is by causing him to also distrust God's provision for him. We can be certain that if we follow God, then we have the same enemy that he has, Satan is our enemy also and we can be guaranteed that he won't play fair he doesn't care for rules he doesn't care for when we're down it will kick us when we are down and it therefore makes sense that when we are at our weakest is when he will come and tempt us the most as well but jesus answers in verse 4 it is written man shall not live on bread alone Jesus answers, not in his own words, but he actually quotes from scripture. And the words that he speaks can be found in Deuteronomy in um, chapter 6, verse 3. 
No, chapter 8, verse 3. And there it's where Moses is speaking to the Israelites as they were on their own journey through the wilderness. And theirs lasted for 40 years because of their decisions to go their own way. And they were struggling and needed reminding. They were struggling to trust God to provide for them. And the sentence that, the words that Jesus quotes um, goes on to say in the original text in Deuteronomy that it's, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus knows this very clearly. And although he's absolutely exhausted and completely starving at this point, he still knows that it's not our physical beings that we need to focus on when God is calling us to a bigger task, a bigger mission. So Jesus manages to keep the focus. He knows that food is essential, but if you only feed your body, then your spirit will dry up and it will die. And the spirit, although our bodies are precious and important for us to live in this physical life, our spirits are the most important thing about who we are. Satan also strategically uses Jesus' title. Did you notice that he specifically mentions if you are the son of God? I don't think he's questioning that there. He's just reminding him, putting it out there. Not that Jesus needed reminding, but he wants to use it as part of the temptation. If you emphasize somebody's title, somebody's importance, somebody's position, perhaps you can tempt them more easily to use that in the wrong way. And he's reminding Jesus that he is no mere man. He doesn't have to wait for God to provide the food. He could just create it himself. He could not only turn a stone into bread, he could turn the sand into a feast. He could choose to provide for himself and not wait patiently on the Father. And we are susceptible to this too. Positions, titles, being praised, being honoured, it's something that we enjoy if we're really honest and something that can distract us from maybe the, the task or the mission that we really have to do in life. It is very tempting and perhaps Satan uses that with you. Perhaps feeling important is a motivator for you as well. Thankfully, it wasn't for Jesus because instead of answering from God's son's perspective, Jesus actually answers as a man. It was a very humble response. He had a mission and to fulfill it, he knew he had to take on the human form completely. So he answered from that perspective. And because of that, he is so aware of what we go through. He knows completely our limitations because he placed himself under those limitations. But he shows us a way through it, a way to respond to the pushback from the enemy, from the world. In this case, Satan. And he shows us that we can do that by using God's word and using it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is available to us in the same way he was available to Jesus. Have you ever thought about the significance of that? It's the same Spirit that is with us 
today, that speaks and moves and acts today on God's behalf through his people that we saw at work in Jesus and in the disciples and the miracles and the life change and the, the explosion of the church out of a tiny group of crazy men believed to be by their, their community. His spirit is a gift to us when we accept his forgiveness, when we come to God in faith and decide to follow him. His spirit then resides in us. Let's not underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit in us and when we use God's word in that power. And the Bible isn't just literal words either, is it? We know that it says that it's living and active and it's even powerful to re- in rebuking the, the devil himself. It's actually a weapon. It's called the sword of the spirit. And in Ephesians 6, we see that. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Verses 10 to 17, this is. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The next temptation that the devil puts before Jesus is verses 5 to 7. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Here the temptation is taking a major detour. He could still get what he came for, but he could avoid all the pain that lay ahead of him. That temptation must have been extremely real. Jesus came to a point just before his arrest and crucifixion where he actually pleaded with God to remove the the cup of suffering that lay before him. And he was referring to the cross, the death by crucifixion and being separated by God by carrying all the sin of the world. So in that moment, he could choose a shortcut to go around the cross, but still gain back the world. Thankfully, Jesus could see what it was about, this temptation. It wasn't so much about the kingdoms and uh, gaining the world. What Satan was putting to him was more about who he served, He could get the world this way, but he would then have to worship Satan to receive it. And it's because he serves the Father and knows his will, even when it included the cross, that he could refuse. A shortcut wouldn't bring glory to God, and so instead Jesus answered in verse 8, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
we can do what Jesus did as well. It's quite simple, but not necessarily easy. And I think those two things get confused sometimes. But in James 4, 7, it says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Here is an attempt to get Jesus to test God's faithful protection. The Jewish temple, it represented the place where God connected with his people. It was his closeness to them in an earthly place. And it was a place of his refuge and protection. So the tallest height of that building was the perfect place for Satan to stage this temptation. But now Satan himself is using scripture. He's already been shut down twice by Jesus. He himself knows the power of God's word. And so he uses it, but he uses it to contradict himself, itself. He uses one part of the Bible from Psalm 91 to contradict another part of the Bible, which is in Deuteronomy 6. And that's the verse or the, the words that Jesus uses to answer him. Verse 12, Jesus answered, it is said... Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Straight from the word of God and using the word of God correctly, not twisting it and misusing it. Verse 13. When the devil had finished all of this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The enemy doesn't give up easily. He's always prowling. He's always looking for opportunities to trip us up in our walk with God and our walk towards a life with him. He's always attempting to complicate our lives and lure us with something that seems better. When we follow Jesus, we can be absolutely certain that we will get pushed back, that we will experience attack, that we will come under temptations and we'll have to face them, but we don't have to face them alone. We don't have what it takes to take on the evil enemy of God in our own strength. It's just not possible to come out the other side winning. But with Jesus, because of Jesus, because of his walk through this time of testing and his, his success in the area of temptation... Success is the wrong word, but being victorious in this area. Because of that and because of the spirit that has been given as a gift to us, if we choose to accept Christ into our lives, and because of God's word, we can also resist temptation. We don't have to be tempted to distrust our Heavenly Father to provide. We don't need to uh, look to anything else, to serve or worship only God. And we don't need to test his love. He's already proven it completely 
by sending Jesus to die on the cross. It's the most, the biggest gift that he could give. So there's no need to test. And we're forbidden to do that anyway. Shortcuts seem appealing sometimes because God's timing and God's plan for us is often particularly hard. But with the big picture in mind, like if we can step back sometimes from our own lives and see what might be going on, what's at play. I think uh, we talked a lot about the upper story and the lower story through one of our previous series here last year. Sometimes we need to get into the upper story. We need to step up to a higher place where we can see some of what God is doing to give us courage to know. We don't have to take shortcuts and detours if God has given us a path to walk he will walk with us through it and provide us every tool every weapon to come through to be victorious to bring glory to him and simply to live in that simple and uncomplicated and incredible relationship that we were designed for to to know God the father through Christ the son blessed by the Holy Spirit. I'd like to finish with a passage just refocuses us on Jesus. It's from Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. I'll invite the, the team to come. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.